us? Does he think he is Tarzan or what? He knows the woods, though. He really does. Not he does. really. You learn him, he doesn't feel him. That's Lewis's problem. He wants to be one with nature, and he can't hack it. It's a hell of a time to be telling us that. <laughs> you ever seen a grown man naked? Zoom is next on the Gridley Wave Network. On tape delay from the Barsoomian Blade Bureau in Chicago, Illinois. Dateline Jasoom. A Panthen Press production. For the fans of Edgar Rice Burroughs and Pulp Adventure, here's your host, Elmo. And welcome to show number 10. I was watching Deliverance the other day, and I caught that little reference to Tarzan. And which Deliverance is a movie that always sort of reminded me of Tarzan, at least a dark, mere universe, bizarro world sort of Tarzan. And it got me thinking about how much the ape man has permeated pop culture to the point where you can just throw in a little reference like that and everyone knows what you're talking about. But I also started wondering about some of the pop culture that maybe influenced Burroughs when he was creating Tarzan. I recently found this pretty cool website called the Cylinder Preservation and Digitization Project. It's part of the Department of Special Collections at the Donald C. Davidson Library at the University of California in Santa Barbara. Now what they do apparently is take old cylinder recordings from around the turn of the last century and put them into digital format. They encourage people to spread them around the internet and share them with friends as a way of preserving them. All these recordings have long since gone into the public domain. Doing my part, I thought I'd share one of them with you on Dateline Jassoom. This is called The Jingle of Jungle Joe. And, Burroughs fans, it was released in 1911 by the Edison Phonograph Monthly. Hand 
handed him the lamp and went to be a suffragette. Joey used to rave about her lovely dreamy eyes. He kissed her by surprise, so would the other guys. Now he's weeping for her teasing, makes him feel so blue. And he has to rock the cradle through. When old Jungle Joe was single, way up in the banyan tree, every night he'd sing this jingle. The website doesn't say when in 1911 this was released. It's composed and performed by Theodore Morse and Jack Mahoney in the American Quartet. According to Erwin Porges in The Man Who Created Tarzan, Ed started writing Tarzan of the Apes on December 1st, 1911 at 8 p.m. 
<laughs> I I love those little details in that that biography. Uh, so I can see maybe uh, Burroughs listening to this cylinder and picking up his pen and deciding Jungle Joe needed a mate and giving him Jane. Of course, in Tarzan of the Apes, the ape man loses his Jane, just like Jungle Joe. Jane didn't become a suffragette, but she did go off, and uh, Tarzan went back to the jungle. Bud Light presents Real Men of Genius. Real Men of Genius. Today, we salute you, Mr. Painful Loincloth Wedgie Guy. Fighting lions and rhinos and painful loincloth wedgies all at the same time takes a commitment seldom seen in this modern world, where most men only dare to tread the pavement of a tame urban jungle in comfortable cotton briefs beneath tasteful slacks. But you have the guts to brave the wild, secure enough in your manhood not to worry about that loincloth flapping in the wind, getting bunched up in awkward crevices best left unmentioned. And all it earns you is a citation from the Department of Natural Resources for hunting rare and endangered species. So, when the killing's done, and you've returned home for some quality time with Mrs. Loincloth Wedgie, hoist yourself a cold Bud Light and belt out one more victory cry of the bull ape as you get rid of that damn loincloth. You deserve it. Bud Light Beer, Anheuser-Busch, St. Louis, Missouri. Okay, we're going to pick up where we left off about a month ago at uh, the Oak Park, Illinois Historical Society's panel discussion about Edgar Rice Burroughs and Ray Bradbury. And the speaker I'm bringing you today is George McWhorter, curator of the Burroughs Memorial Library at uh, the University of Louisville in Louisville, Kentucky. And of course, George is also publisher of the Burroughs Bibliophiles Burroughs Bulletin. I grew up with Burroughs. My mother taught me how to read at the age of five uh, with his books. And she would underline the words as she read them so I could see what they looked like and hear what they sounded like at the same time. So I learned how to read like that. I would beg her when I was a child for just one more chapter before bedtime and she would say, oh no. You learn how to read for yourself, and you can read as much as you want. So that was my motivation. So I tell all the students at the university who come in, uh, I don't care what turns you on, but as long as you learn how to read and explore the world of ideas, that's the important thing. I don't care if it's uh, Peter Pan or uh, Dr. Zhivago, whatever it is that turns you on to reading 
that's a good thing. Anyway, I, uh, I got a, a phone call from Ray Bradbury several months after I had written him. And he said, you know, in my child, uh, childhood memories of Tarzan, uh, they're in the blood. They will never leave me. He said, but I missed somehow all of the Tarzan daily newspaper strips and uh, that were drawn by Rex Maxson. And if you have them, would you please send them to me? <laughs> so I did. And he, he, was, he was delighted, and he sent me back a big fat check and a picture of himself holding his little pussycat in his arms and signed it for me, which I hadn't asked for, but I was glad to have it. Anyway, uh, uh, Fahrenheit 451 is one of the great dystopian novels of our uh, modern age, as opposed to utopian, uh, where uh, a, a, a civilization is taken over by big brothers uh, watching you and uh, telling you what to do and what to think and what not to think. And uh, as I read the book, I got the uh, strong similarities to a book that Burroughs had written in 1922 called The Moon Maid. And uh, in one place, Ray Bradbury says, uh, the word intellectual became a swear word. And so I found a similar passage in Burroughs where he describes the life cycle of 20 generations of the same family, Julian I, Julian II, Julian III, so forth, up to Julian XX. And uh, uh, the moon invaders had come to Earth in uh, a spaceship which had been taught to, to them how to make by an Earthman named Orcus. Anyway, they uh, they controlled everything just like in, in Fahrenheit 451. In one place, uh, Bradbury says the word intellectual became a swear word. And Burroughs, uh, he's talking about the history of Julian the Tenth, no, Julian the Ninth, and he says I was born in the Tavos of Chicago. T-E-I-V-O-S. Burroughs loved to spell words backwards, and that is Soviet spelled backwards. <laughs> he did that often. Uh, Anorak, for example, is another one that I've always liked. That, that's the famous uh, land on Venus, which is the name of his typewriter spelled backwards, Corona. <laughs> but he says, I was born in the Tavos of Chicago, January 1, 2100 to Julian VIII and Elizabeth James. My father and mother were not married as marriages had long since become illegal. I was called Julian IX. My parents were of the rapidly dis diminishing intellectual class and could both read and write. So he tells about how uh, learning had been almost stamped out and certainly religion. He, he says uh, uh, that they had secret meetings uh, uh, after religion had been stamped out. And of course, the, the, the racial memories handed down from generation to generation in these Americans 
re revolved around the American flag, and they would hide it in a little niche in the wall so that so that the uh, uh, their invaders could not see it. And, and uh, but there's a wonderful thing in here on Oak Park. He falls in love with a gal who said that she had. She told me she'd been born and raised in the Tavos, just west of Chicago. She says, my father's home is in a district called Oak Park. And our house was one of the few that remained from ancient times. It was of solid concrete and stood upon the corner of two roads. Once it must have been a very beautiful place, and even time and war have been unable entirely to erase its charm. Three great poplar trees rose to the north of it, beside the ruins of what my father said was once a place where motor cars were kept by the long-dead owner. So if this sounds familiar to any of you, maybe it's a landmark. <laughs> but anyway, he brings up uh, uh, Oak Park several times. One other interesting thing that I noticed about uh, Fahrenheit 451 and Burroughs' tendency to quote uh, passages that he liked and not identify them. Now, uh, Bradbury does identify some, uh, like, you know, uh, Clarice, the, the little uh, uh, nature girl that lived next to Montag uh, and who was killed by uh, a car. Uh, his wife finally tells him, Mildred, tells him that she's dead. And, and she said she just forgot to tell him. And he quotes this, uh, we cannot tell the precise moment when friendship is formed. As in the filling a vessel drop by drop, there is at last a drop which makes it run over. So in a series of kindnesses, there is a last one which makes the heart run over. And I thought, that sounds so familiar. What is that? Well, I, I had to look it up in Bartlett's, and finally I found it, and it's uh, James Boswell's Life of Johnson, written in 1777. And Bur Burroughs starts one of his short stories uh, called Beware, which was first published uh, in pulp magazines under a different title, Scientists Revolt. And one of the, he starts it off with a quote, So fleet the works of men, ancient and holy things fade like a dream. I thought, that sounds so familiar. Where did I have seen it? And it came to me. It was embroidered on the gold curtain of the opera house in Central City, Colorado. And then I remembered that uh, the Ballad of Baby Doe by Gerald Moore was given there. So I went to my memorial album and found it, and sure enough, it came from Charles Kingsley. And Burroughs never identifies it. Uh, Bradbury has several quotes which I love and which I wrote down. And of course, the last one, which is, is the, the denouement, he reads from the book of Revelation, the 22nd chapter, the second verse. Uh, and it's the last thing in 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 the book. Uh, On either side of the river was there a tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, 
and yielded her fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And that's how 451 ends, as he becomes the mouthpiece for the book of Revelations. It's a wonderful story, and I'm, uh, I'm glad to see so sim many similarities in it to uh, Mr. Burroughs, because they, they both had imaginations that never stopped. But I will. Thank you. <laughs> That's it for show number 10. Thanks for joining us this week. I hope you had fun, because I did, as always. I want to thank Steve Gack, the hairy one, Wadding, for helping out with that uh, commercial we played today, and also George McWhorter, who you just heard, and who was one of the speakers at uh, the panel discussion in Oak Park. Uh, in uh, Probably on the next show, we'll be hearing from another one of the speakers. So, I'll talk to you in two weeks. Bud Light presents Real Men of Genius. Real Men of Genius. Today we salute you, Mr. Giant Pocket Knife Inventor. Mr. Giant Pocket Knife Inventor. Because of you, we'll never be lost in the middle of a dense forest without a little plastic toothpick again. What's that bulge in my pocket? It's my knife. And my tweezers. And my scissors. And my spoon. And my bottle opener. And my fish scaler. Take it to the max. And my leather awl. And my corkscrew. And my nail file. And my paring knife. And my hasp. What's a hasp? So crack open an ice cold Bud Light, Mr. Giant Pocket Knife Inventor, because you make our pockets bulge humongously. With pride. Mr. Giant Bud Light Beer at Isabur, St. Louis, Missouri. This is Elmo from the Barsoomian Blade Bureau in Chicago, signing off. <laughs>